Hello, Nancy. Hi, Shane. Uh, so today we are talking about the ozone hole. Yes. Do you remember the ozone hole? I mean, I I, I know what it is. But you don't but remember. Do you actually know when, like what the timeline was for it? We were talking about this beforehand. Yeah. Like in the mid 80s is when they, they kind of first, I think, discovered. I was born. There was the ozone hole. In the mid 80s. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm assuming you remember. <laughs> I do remember. Oh, I'm assuming because you're so old. <laughs> But I do remember the ozone hole. I remember I was saying I remember because I was a kid. I was, you know, like eight, ten, whatever. I remember it was such a big deal. Hairspray. Oh, sure. Hairspray had the stuff in it that made that was bad for the ozone hole. So people were like crazy about not using (laughs) hairspray. Well, couldn't you just use like couldn't you just use like a pump? Well, they didn't have it. No, it's all void. It didn't exist. Shane. Well, I don't don't look at me like that. I don't know. aerosol cans yeah, that like sure, no sure. one uses now or they use it now but with different propellants right, or whatever right. it was but it was like that was what that oh. was what things were and I remember it was like such a big deal that's funny I had no idea right. that that I mean that totally did, makes sense you like shun them you well. know <laughs> Now I just think of like, for me, the thing I think about is when I go to, um, I get like takeout somewhere and a lot of places are really good about this and there's a bunch of laws and everything, but there's still like food trucks and things where you get styrofoam. Right. Just get, I, I know, just like, no, so there's something bad. It's just bad. Like I, I just can't. Oh, but I don't, I don't necessarily have to use, worry about hairspray. I put a lot of stuff in my hair. <laughs> there's no, hairspray. there's no hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun, Centennial Edition. Okay, so uh, we're not here today to talk about hairspray. Unfortunately. Unfortunately not. No. <laughs> uh, what are what are we talking about? So this is one of our centennial episodes. And this month for the centennial, we're focused on or looking at atmospheric science. And one of, you know, the biggest kind of scientific, I guess, problems that we faced recently, relatively recently. Recently. And that scientists. More recently for some of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that scientists <laughs> kind of figured out what to do about it was the ozone hole. So it's actually kind of a great success story, really. Um, and there's things we can learn about it. So um, Janessa Duncombe, who is a um, intern in EOS, our news website, and I went up to NASA Goddard um, a couple weeks ago and talked to two scientists there who've been involved with the, you know, looking, figuring out what was wrong with the ozone hole, and then now a lot about the recovery of the ozone hole. So, hi, Janessa. Hey, Nancy. How's it going? Oh, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I have to say right now, it's snowing outside in mid-November, and it makes me so very happy. Yes, I gorgeous, know. Gorgeous, gorgeous. <laughs> so, yeah, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, you were there, we went up there together. So, you were not bored when this whole ozone hole thing oh. was going on. Oh, no, I was not even, I was not even on this planet. I'm a 90s baby, okay? <laughs> wow. <laughs> proud. Right. I am proud. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we went up to Goddard, and um, I was really curious to learn about it um, and hear these scientists um, talk about what ozone really is. From what I learned talking to them, um, it seems like ozone is this protective shield that goes around the entire Earth, and it keeps us from harm from the ultra ultraviolet rays that come from the sun. Those can cause you know, skin cancer, cataract, damaged plants, and everything. 
And uh, some things that humans were putting out with hairspray, Nancy, <laughs> and other things. Refrigerators, air conditioners. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There Bigger was more things. than just yeah. the hairspray. Okay. More than just the hairspray. But um, yeah, those those were starting to damage ozone um, and cause a thinning of our pre- protective layer. And it seems like it was a, actually a really scary time for a lot of people. Yeah, it was. So yeah, so now we'll hear from um, from Susan Strawn and Ann Douglas um, a little bit about the ozone hole. I'm Susan Strawn, and I'm a senior research scientist here. Uh, I've been at Goddard for 26 years, but mostly working on the ozone layer and stratospheric chemistry and dynamics the entire time. My name is Ann Douglas. Uh, I am also a senior researcher at Goddard. I have been here in one way or another since 1981, which feels like forever. <laughs> and uh, I was project scientist for the Aura satellite, and I was co-lead for our chemistry climate model. And I've been working on ozone and satellite data and all sorts of questions about what will affect ozone my whole career. And so the first published report of there being something unusual about Antarctic ozone goes back to 1985, a paper by Joe Farman and others, and they had been looking at October levels of total column ozone at Halley Bay Station, which is pretty high southern latitude, and it had been at some value, you know, throughout the 60s and early 70s, somewhere around 300 Dobson units. And then they noticed in starting the late 70s, early 80s, that value was declining and pretty rapidly. And that decline was, was greater than the sort of year-to-year bouncing up and down mm-hmm. that you might expect from just meteorological variations. And so that was the first publication that alerted people to there being something strange going on over Antarctica. As soon as it was reported and people realized they could believe the instruments, then you had from the satellite data not just a, a single point, but you had a... Um, you had a map. You had you a map had, you had so a that map. you could see yeah. see what was happening over this larger geographical area. And then you could also see, when you look back now, you could see how it had been developing between 1979 and 1985, 1986. So if you went back and actually looked at that data and, and you could see it now. that it Right, you, you would have a whole, a whole, like she said, a large geographical mm-hmm. map of the whole southern hemisphere. And you could see that it was like a little bit low in 79, the, the first... Uh, first year they had measurements, and then it got lower real fast. And you know, in five, six, seven years, it was now getting really low. But it also bounced, and that's why it took a while for there to be a to be a good theory. So when it first came out, though, that they saw this decline in ozone. Did people were people guessing like this could be it, or, or how? Did, I mean, they didn't know what the reason was, right? They didn't. Farman actually had a plot showing CFCs going up, and he's like, I think that this is could be the cause. Mm-hmm. It showed ozone going down and chlorofluorocarbons going up. And that, so the decline was definitely correlated with the rise in chlorofluorocarbons. But as you know, correlation is not causality. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so people needed to understand what was happening. And so the other thing, of course, is that chlorofluorocarbons themselves, they don't affect ozone or anything else. They're wonderful inert molecules, and that's why we use them in so many ways. You can breathe them. They don't hurt you. You get them on your skin. You don't get a rash. Mm -hmm. They're wonderful molecules with all kinds of wonderful uses. Except? 
except <laughs> that if they get above the ozone layer, really they have to get above the ozone layer because the ozone layer protects them from being destroyed, just the way it protects us. They have to get up where they can be hit by ultraviolet radiation. So, like not, like not only is you know like chlorine is going up okay, but then you have to show that the the product gases of chlorofluorocarbon destruction, that that's what's showing up in the Antarctic vortex. And since they only get destroyed high up, you had to have that, or mostly get destroyed high up, you have that high up air that had to be transported and then come all the way down. Right. And then, so you need this, what we call isolated unmixed descent. And then you still didn't have any chemical processes that would make ozone go down. We had to come up with a whole different set of chemical reactions. From right. This was what was missing back then is we, no one expected this to happen. No one had this in their model that there should be this huge depletion. This was, so this was really a huge surprise. And, it was, um, and this, is the, this was the missing piece of the puzzle was the ice particles that form in the Antarctic stratosphere. Right, but it freezing. turns out there was there were, <laughs> but there was chemical reactions going on on the surfaces of the ice particles, and that's and that was what was missing. But people hadn't thought about for the for chemical models, and they started putting in some reactions that might go on 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 ice particle surfaces, and those reactions freed up the chlorine from a pretty safe species. So, after Anne was saying how the CFCs have to get up high to break down, they do, and that but they break down into HCl hydrochloric acid and chlorine nitrate, and both of those are pretty non-reactive gases, so they don't destroy ozone either. So the key was that in the Antarctic lower stratosphere, on the surfaces of these little ice particles, these forms of chlorine that were kind of safe, these reservoir gases, would get on the surface and react, and they would free chlorine into a reactive form that could then attack ozone. So that's why this big ozone depletion is unique to the polar regions, and it's especially a big deal in the Antarctic because it's so cold there. So you can make a lot of the ice particles and then you have this processing of the nice safe, safe forms of chlorine into reactive dangerous forms and then when the sun comes back, uh, which the sun starts to return to the polar region in August and then fully, uh, fully sunlit in September, then these reactions go like, go like crazy and you destroy a lot of And there's ozone. nothing to stop them. There's nothing to slow them down or put on the brakes. So they're talking about like these these reactions and how big of a deal, but like honestly, like how big of a deal was it? Like, like what's the science here? Well, what what I was reading about these, you know, chlorine once they're dangerous in the stratosphere and taking out all these ozone is one chlorine can actually just take out a thousand ozone oh. in in one fell swoop. So it's like it's this continuing reaction um, that it really has a huge impact. And the interesting thing was, that they told us too, was like, they didn't even know that like this reaction happened. They didn't know the chemistry of it. They didn't mm. know the physical mechanism of it. So like you're basically, I mean, this was all brand new. Right. So a big deal. There was furious activity in physical chemistry labs, people trying to measure reaction rates. So that was all going on at the same time. So you had people working with satellite data. You had people trying to model and get quantitative agreement with measurements. You had ground-based measurements, you had aircraft measurements, mm -hmm. um, and you had really captured the imagination of, oh, I, hundreds, if not a thousand or more oh, yeah, yeah. people. 
But I think that the ozone hole, you know, when you think about it, all the different things that had to come together mm -hmm. to really get the theory, there was plenty of room for all kinds of people who, who have a diversity of thought and, you know, bring different, um, different skills to the, to the mix of what was needed. And it because made the this, science, teams, science team meetings really interesting. Well, it was exciting. Mm -hmm. It was exciting. It was exciting to go to the meetings. It was exciting when you developed a new insight and you could share it with people. Um, and it was exciting to be in the field mm -hmm. um, because yeah. when we got to, down to Punta Arenas, where our mission was based, which is down the tip of South America, you know, we didn't know what the answer was going to be. And we would, you know, be, we, the airplane would go up about every three days and then you would come down and you would download your data and print out, you know, the time series plots of your species and then we'd all post our, our results on the bulletin board and have science team meetings and talk about it, you know, and then it was great because like the smoking gun data, we saw it there in the field. It was a super exciting time. Ozone looked normal and CLO, chlorine monoxide, was low. And then a few weeks later, CLO got really high and the ozone went down. It was like, there you go. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a really exciting time. And uh, it was also exciting uh, during this mission, there, there was a lot of the, the political side of this, the negotiation for the treaty, the Montreal Protocol. I think we should all be aware of the size of the challenge we are faced with. If we are able to agree, this would be the first international legal instrument reducing substances detrimental to the environment in a quantifiable measure and on a global scale. That was already going on. But the, but the Montreal Protocol was signed, I believe, during this mission. And it wasn't because of our results. There was there was other other evidence and other reasons to 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 sign the treaty. But um, that that made it extra exciting too. And I think during this meeting, the, the I guess Dupont, who who makes the CFCs, they're like, yeah, it's our stuff. Yeah, it's it's the CFCs. And so it, think, things happened really fast. 1987 was a very action-packed year. But when 90s. we did get the data, we had a little press conference, and I was young and foolish, and people <laughs> kept asking me, they kept asking me questions, and they'd say, well, this is really interesting what your data says, but there's a volcano, Mount Erebus, down there, and couldn't that chlorine come from Mount Erebus? And then I would explain, we would explain again why we knew the chlorine wasn't coming from that volcano, that it was, had to be coming from above. And they said, that's really interesting. And then they go, but are you sure it's not a volcano? And I'm like, gosh darn it. And eventually I lost all my patience and I was like, Khrushchev, I banged my hand on the table. And I said, we've got this nailed. And when I said this, everyone left. And the uh, project manager from NASA headquarters said to me, how does it feel to be a media star? And I was, I'm like, what? And he says, you gave them the quote they wanted. Oh my gosh, it was in the headlines everywhere. What I would give to be a fly on the wall uh, in that room. <laughs> I know, it must have been amazing. Oh, yeah. It was pretty, um, and, and was kind of embarrassed about it, but I thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah, but this had some some serious implications, right? Like more than just like being a big, like her being a big media thing. 
Yeah, I mean, the you know, this research into the ozone hole and what was causing it, um, I mean, people got really serious about it. Every country, I think, in the world signed on to the Montreal Protocol mm-hmm. um, in the 80s, um, effectively banning these chemicals. And, um, and you know, we're seeing now the effects of that, that it, it is working. The banning of it really led to, um, you know, its recovery and, and a real success story. But when you think about it, I mean, like, this is one of the first big problems where we had absolutely conclusive proof that mankind was affecting the planet on a global scale, that what I do in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, in the United States, is actually affecting the whole globe. You know, yeah. not, not just my <laughs> yeah. little, not my little area, you know. I knew someone who had a leak in their air conditioner and they said, well, I'm affecting the ozone around my house. And I'm like, well, really not so much. Actually, (laughs) actually, you're affecting the ozone over the whole world. And that, you know, like the more that we learned about it, so then biologists and uh, health people and people who worry about crop yields and animals, all of those people are jumping in and having something to say about this. And that a big change in the amount of UV reaching the surface. So like over the ozone hole, now you've got a big perturbation, not a small perturbation. And so, you know, people could see the difference in like the plankton that right. are that are down there. You know, like so you could really see um, the impact mm-hmm. that people made. And then that really is the fact that we have this global impact is what stands behind the Montreal Protocol mm-hmm. and its amendments, mm-hmm. and the fact that all of the nations of the world, all of all them. All of them, it's amazing. All of them are yeah. signa- signa- signatories, signatories to, to, the, to the protocol, and its, to the protocol yeah. and its amendments. And like that's just really amazing. And for those of us, the chlorofluorocarbons are also greenhouse gases. They also cause global warming. And so by banning them, we, we did a solid, you know, we did yeah, for, yeah, the, for yeah, global warming, but also the protocol gives us a lot of hope that we were able to create an environmental treaty. Yeah, so I guess, so, I mean, Janessa, what we learned up there, so Susan and Anne have been now working on this for, you know, most of their careers, and then they are involved today to look at um, the recovery, right? Yeah, they're, they're still actively watching um, the ozone over the Antarctic. So they, they look at it from satellites, and it's still a really active area of research, honestly. Yeah, and so they, they know it's recovering. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yes. going to take a while, but it's recovering. But um, I think, remember when we were in the car on the mm-hmm. way home, Susan drove us to the metro, and she had a really good analogy. She said she likes to use the analogy, it's like a swimming pool, and it's draining by this little drain at the bottom of the swimming pool you know, in terms of the recovery, um, to get all that, you know, if you can think of it, when it's empty, it would be recovered. But there are kids jumping in the pool all the time, so it's really hard to see what the level is. Mm -hmm. But over time, of course, it's going to drain and it's going to be recovered. Yeah, trying to, like, see that process is is difficult. The size of it, the size of the ozone hole, the area over which you have that very low ozone is smaller this year than it would have been if chlorine was as high as it used to be. Right. You know, so, okay, we're making progress. But everybody needs to calm down because these are 100-year-lived molecules. So as much as we would like to say, okay, we and we've done everything that we can do. So we've done everything that we can do, and the problem is, like, solved. 
We just have to be patient now. But now we have to be patient because this signature of, you can think of it as like a, a sort of like a beacon of a prior folly. It's going to be with us for a really long time. Right, right. And, and so year to year, the thing that determines how big or how small the ozone hole is the temperature. When you, we, Anne talked about the ice particles and how important they are. If you have a really cold year in the Antarctic stratosphere, well, you have more ice and you're going to have more depletion. So, so this year is a good example of a really cold year, a lot of the ice particles, big ozone hole. Um, but last year it was pretty warm and we didn't have much depletion. So... Um, I've said before, it's going to be a bumpy road. Okay, it's going down, but some years we're going to hit a bump and the ozone hole is going to be big again, like this year. But overall, the chlorine's going down. It's going down very slowly. So if you all be patient till about 2040 or so, by 2040, the ozone holes by then are all going to be smaller than they are today. It'll be, you know, down another notch, a big notch where you can say, oh, yeah, it's definitely smaller every year than it was back in the first decade of the century. But it's going to take decades before that really clear signature of recovery is there. I mean, I think you touched on this a little bit, but what can, what can we kind of learn from that, from this whole story, this ozone story and the Montreal Protocol? That global problems can be solved. <laughs> they can be. I mean, I, I love to, to explain this to people who aren't scientists or aren't involved in earth science, people that think, wow, climate change is a really tough thing to tackle, which it is. But the Montreal Protocol and its amendments, the success of that international treaty in, in solving a global problem, something that you know, is an existential threat to all life on Earth, it's working. It's working. So, you know, have hope. It's possible to, have, to, to solve big problems. So I think that's the biggest message that I've sort of learned, and, that, and that's the most optimistic message that I have from what I've learned in my career. It's really great to hear about um, like the science they were doing and how everything they did affected like it was a, such a broad area of science. But I'm really interested in them and kind of what it was like for them in the field. It's been really exciting. I mean, for me, I, I came out of grad school right at the time when this stuff was discovered, which was good because there's also then funding to do this work. But it was it was really exciting to go into a field that was kind of wide open. It's like what's going on, we figure it out, what are we going to do about it, how do we increase our understanding of the atmosphere. So it's been, it's been exciting and rewarding. Um, and we, we learn things that we think really are, are relevant, societally relevant. So that, that's continued to be rewarding. And I'm sure that's why many of us just don't ever want to retire, because it's an exciting field to be in. John Kennedy, when he was inaugurated, he said, Ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country. And I'm not going to lie, I took it to heart. And I think a lot of people in my generation took it to heart. And so when you're making your career choice, we were looking for something that was going to be for the the greater good. It sounds so corny. We wanted to work for the greater good. Yeah, and and although I was was too young to hear John Kennedy say that live, about half a generation back from Anne, I did grow up in the era where environmental was this really big movement, uh, environmentalism. And um, so that had a big influence on me as well. And I always wanted to do something with the environment, but I wasn't sure what, and I just kind of was plodding along following science interests until my science interests one day overlapped with environmental opportunities. So then how did it feel, I mean, working on this problem, this ozone problem, and then to see the, I mean, you talked a little bit about the Montreal Protocol, but when it got signed and then the amendments, I mean, to 
think that you had a, a, a hand in it's it, a part thrilling. of it. It's, no, it's thrilling. thrilling. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's thrilling. And all of my kids, and I have I have 12 grandchildren, four of them are quadruplets, which is why I have, they just bumped up in a big hurry. But um, all my kids and grandkids know that they're supposed to be checking because the ozone hole is probably going to last longer than I Than do. you and I will. <laughs> we will. But but my kids know, they know that from an environmental point of view, I want them to notice when it's gone and I want them to tell everyone. My mother was part of that. Yeah. It's, you know, like, yes. And that grandma was right. And grandma was right. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. She was right. She was right. That's, that's true. You know, I think that's just a good place to end it. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks, Janessa, for helping me out with this story. Um, and of course, to Susan and Anne for sharing their work with us. Yeah, the podcast is also produced with help from Josh Spicer, Olivia Ambrosio, Katie Rundell, and Liza Lester. And thanks to Kayla Surrey for producing the episode. We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast on this episode please rate and review us on apple podcasts listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and of course thirdpodfromthesun.com thanks all and we'll see you next time